continue worshiping our awesome God together with the reading of Scripture. And we'll pick up this morning in Mark chapter 12, and I'll be reading verses 18 through 27, and then preaching from these verses a message entitled, Resurrected to Eternal Life. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. But of the living, you are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Father, I, I simply pray that you'd use your word this morning to give us better understanding of, better hope for, greater longing for the life that is to come. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, you may be seated. Not once, but twice, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are wrong. Now, I just want to point out here at the beginning that uh, I think you would agree with the statement that you're not perfect. You still have a long way to go and you're maturing under Christ-likeness. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have maturing to, to, to come and growth to come. Uh, and as you read the scripture, you ought to come to an understanding that there are things that you think that are wrong. Now, I, I want to caution you that there are sub- certain things, the internet, for example, social media, for example, that are big enough and wide enough that you can always go and find something to confirm what you already think. But the scripture is not that way, friends, and Jesus is not that way. So anybody who's humbly and honestly coming to the Lord through his word will not every once in a while, but frequently understand that there are things about which you are wrong. What's the last thing that God, through his word, revealed to you that you are wrong about? And when God reveals to you that you're wrong, it's not in an insulting way. It is in in a helpful way. He's never exposing ignorance for the sake of embarrassment, but for the sake of maturity. And the Sadducees are just the latest. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a little while now. And you can see and recognize that the, S, or, or the, the Pharisees, the scribes, last week it was the Pharisees and the Herodians, this group of people are coming to Jesus, or one group after another, questioning him, and today it is the Sadducees. Well, just briefly to know who the Sadducees are, 
they were the rivals and uh, the opposition to the Pharisees. They, they, they didn't get along, the two groups together. The Sadducees were fewer in number, and they kind of liked it that way because they saw themselves as the educated elite. Most of the Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats. They had significant political influence and a lot of influence over the temple. They dominated the Sanhedrin. Uh, They're sympathetic to Hellenism. They liked some of the Greek ideas and technology and ways of life. Uh, They sort of supported Herod and Rome. And when it comes to the scripture, they saw only the books of Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy, the first five books, as authoritative. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the miraculous. They did not believe in angels or demons. And in particular, for the uh, purposes of this passage, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They believed when you die, that's it. Lights out. Game over. They were not looking for a Messiah from the line of David. They were much more interested in sort of the political climate of their own day and obtaining, leveraging, and using power. Now, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, about 40 years or so before the temple is destroyed, he'll reference that in the chapters that are to come. And when the temple is destroyed, guess what happens to the Sadducees? Their influence is over and they sort of fade away into history. But they did like a particular debating point that they used with the Pharisees. And what seems to be the case is the Pharisees never really had a good answer for it. And it's this question about who's, if there is a resurrection, Mr. Pharisee, whose wife will this lady be on the basis of what the scripture says? Now, just for the sake of information, let's turn back here to Deuteronomy chapter 25. So if you've got a Bible here to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and I want you to see the passage that this whole question is based around. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse number 5. Deuteronomy uh, 25, verse number 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, that's the scripture that this question is based around. So a brother dies, his wife becomes the brother's wife, and it goes on and on and on. And they use sort of this absurd scenario uh, of a conversation where seven brothers, now whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Oh, Mr. Smarty Pants, who believes in the resurrection? They're on purpose presenting sort of an absurd scenario. The purpose of Deuteronomy 25 was to keep a family from dying out. And sometimes we say it in sports today, it's not about the name on the back of the jersey, it's about the name on the front. And that's the concept. It's about this family maintaining their line and presence in the community as a whole. And Jesus responds to them (laughs) by saying, in a very straightforward way, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I just want you to pay attention to the two things he says. First of all, he says they don't know the scriptures, and they also don't know the power of God. And I want you to be encouraged that those two things go together. It is possible, it is possible to have knowledge of the scripture but not know the power of God. In fact, 
the scriptures tell us that's a hallmark of the last days. People hold to a form of godliness but deny its, does anybody know the word? Power. Do you have power in your life on the basis of scripture? Not are you looking for power on the basis, the Sadducees are looking for power on the basis of their own preferences. So another way of understanding is when God exposes something in your life that's wrong, he's revealing to you where you lack power. He's trying to help us. And good news, there's nothing more powerful than the power of God. But I want to start with this point. The first point is if you get the resurrection wrong, you get most everything wrong. We get the resurrection wrong, we get most everything wrong. So uh, Jesus' logic is pretty clear. He says, uh, God doesn't say, God, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, are that time and place in history, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive or quote unquote dead? Well, they're dead, but God testifies, I am their God. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. If what you believe is true, then God would say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what God says. I am the God. So therefore, death is not an end. We tracking together, friends? Death is not a conclusion. When the Bible speaks of death, the meaning is separation. For example, one of the first that we get in the Bible is God said to Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit that I'm warning you not to eat of, what will happen? You will die. Now, Adam ate, Eve ate. Did their heart stop? No. Did their kidneys stop? No. So what happened? Did God not mean what he said? No, no. Death is separation. Were they separated from God? Absolutely. How do we know? When God came close, they drew away. They hid themselves. They tried to cover themselves. And not only were they separated from God, what else has happened? Oh, we've gone from bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh to it's all her fault. They're separated from one another. That is the world we live in. We live in a world of separation. Now, in the same way, when you, what we would say, die, what happens? The soul is separated from the body. It's not that you've ceased to exist. It's that there's been a separation. It's not sufficient to say you have an immortal soul. What's more biblical to say is you are an immortal soul. When you die, you don't cease to exist, but there's a separation of the soul from the body. But the resurrection is that soul is brought back to a resurrection body. You may remember Jesus said it this way. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. So the vast, the vast, vast majority of your existence will take place in the life that is to come. So you need to think accordingly. You need to plan accordingly. And by God's grace, we need to live accordingly. What I want to do is spend some time talking to you about the resurrection and just give you some biblical information about it. Yesterday, uh, we were driving, my son and I, to, to Raleigh, and my little Bluetooth uh, player in my truck kind of was getting real fuzzy. 
And so I did something I've not done in years and years and years. I turned on an FM station. Remember the FM stations? So I turned on an FM station, and immediately a song began to play that I haven't heard for years. Isn't it funny how you can't hear a song for years, but as soon as you hear it, you know it. And uh, it just happened to be a song by Brian Adams called The Summer of 69. I don't know if you know this song or not, but I'm, I have a kind of strange habit. Is as I listen to a song, I, I kind of share the gospel with the song. I just witness to the song. I just Because it says so, so many songs say things that aren't true, and so I just kind of I didn't, because Abel was in the car, I didn't talk out loud, but that's what I normally do. And so a couple of things in the song that I just said, in light of what I've been studying, that's not true. One of the things, the refrain he says over and over, he's talking about the summer of 69. By the way, Brian Adams was born in 1959, so I don't know what he's talking about the summer of 69 when he was 10 years old, but I digress. But he kept saying again and again, those were the best days of my life. He's nostalgic for days gone by. And so as we talk about the resurrection, what I want you to know, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your best days by far are still to come. So if you ever start looking back at what you think of the good old days, you need to start looking forward to what will be the glorious days. It's not that those were the best days of my life. Our best days are still to come. And all the time that I've ever talked to a song, it's never quite talked back. So I'm going to take the opportunity to talk to you. And I've got two bits of information. I want to talk to you about your resurrection body, and then I want to talk to you towards the end of the sermon about heaven. Jesus uses the most well-known passage from the book of Moses to point out their error. He doesn't turn to sort of an obscure passage in Leviticus. He says, haven't you read about the bush? He's talking about the burning bush, right, in the book of Exodus, the most probably likely well-known passage from the five books, to point out to them that what they think they know, they don't know. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So what we call death, what we mean biblically is it's a separation of the soul from the body. Those who've died haven't ceased to exist. And then Jesus speaks of a day when the soul will be reunited with the body, and that's the resurrection. He says, look at it with me, verse 25 for when, not if, for when they rise from the dead, not if. So I want to pause for just a moment. Hey, hey, you're going to be there in that moment. You're going to be there. This resurrection moment when the God of all creation returns and he speaks. The dead will rise. So let me t- tell you about your resurrection body. I'm just going to give you some information from the scripture. Start here. Your resurrection body will be recognizable. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, the apostle Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When you have your resurrection body, you'll be rec- recognizable. Now, again, our fear is, see, God's restoring things not back to Eden, better than Eden. And our fear often in life is, if we're really recognized, we won't really be loved. Isn't that our fear? And think about all the effort we put into people not really knowing us as we really are. And that's not friendship. Heaven is going to be a place where you'll be known, recognized, and loved. Because friendship requires recognition. Now, 
I have a friend from high school that I hadn't seen in years and years, and then I saw him recently, and at first I didn't quite recognize him, and then I realized, you know what, he also doesn't recognize me, because the last time we saw each other, we both weighed 160-some pounds, and I didn't have so much gray hair. But then in a moment, we were able to recognize one another. You know, I think one of the hardest parts of this pandemic has been the isolation and the loneliness and the sense of being cut off, and heaven will be recognizable Right now, it's a mirror that we see dimly, but, now, but then rather face to face. I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So your resurrection body will be recognizable. And then second, 1 John 3, 12 will, will teach us that your resurrection body will be like Christ's body. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, right? He came up out of the grave, and the resurrection body he has helps you understand the resur- resurrection body you'll have. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and thank the Lord for that. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, some people get tripped up in this Mark 12 passage about marriage when Jesus says, Uh, When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I remember when I was a young man in particular, like in the youth group days, and I'd read this passage and I always get nervous because I was like, I want to grow up and get married. And marriage has been awesome. Love my wife. Love my children. But Jesus is teaching us is something better is coming in heaven. And I don't think he means a little bit better. I mean, beyond what you can think or imagine better. Our resurrection bodies will be like the resurrected Jesus. The scripture also teaches us that our resurrection bodies will be eternal. Now, I still think of myself as a young man, but man, I got this shoulder right here. Can you just, this is, close your ears if you don't want to hear this. It's constant. I tell you if it's going to rain or not. Arthritis. I mean, I know I'm fairly still, but I'll get up out of the bed, and I'm trying to get out of the bed without grunting in the morning. You know what I mean? Our resurrection bodies, Paul says, we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Now, let's take a moment and think about, Paul's talking about in the perspective of he's gone through it, man. He's gotten the lashings. He's been in the shipwreck. He's had stones thrown at him against his tent, his body, to the point that is, they thought he was dead. And he's saying, hey, that ain't going to stop me from going next to this next place to share the gospel. Because I've got a building, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Wanting to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it off, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You start to pick up on this. He who has prepared this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We're going to see again and again as we walk through these scriptures that the work of your resurrection is the personal work of God. When you're freed from this body, you're eternally free from, to use these passages, this passage rather, groaning, and burdens. Got groanings and burdens right now? The temporary. Next, the scripture teaches us that the resurrection body won't have any pain. 
Revelation 21.4 is likely a verse many of you are familiar with. I just want you to hear it and take it in. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I heard a preacher say one time, how close do you have to get to someone to wipe their tears away? And that's what God has promised to do. It's his personal work. There is coming a day, not pie-in-the-sky optimism, but word of God clarity, you'll have no reason to mourn or cry. There's no heartache in heaven. And the resurrection body will not die. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, one of my privileges as a pastor is to frequently prepare for and be there for funerals. But there's one funeral that we're going to that's going to be a party. There is a funeral of death itself. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When God raises us from the dead, he raises us to eternal life. And then, praise God Almighty, in the resurrection body, you will not sin. Wow. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You will not sin. You will not be sinned against Won't it be glorious to be done with sin? To never again, to never again do something that would sever your fellowship with the Lord. Well, that's a little bit about your resurrection body. We'll be here before you know it. And now I want to talk to you about those redeemed by Jesus will be in heaven. And I want to describe to you what the scripture says about heaven. Let's start here. Heaven is being prepared by Christ himself. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I read this week Romans 12, 12. And I want to preface reading Romans 12, 12 by saying, If you really believe this promise that Jesus is preparing a place for you, that where he is, there you'll be also, it'll allow you to obey Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. As we've gone through the gospel of Mark together, haven't you been amazed by the compassion of Jesus? I mean, I remember about a year ago when we started the gospel of Mark, one of the first things we have is the leper so isolated and alone and he comes up to Jesus and says if you're willing I know you can make me clean you remember the, pa- the passage says Jesus stretched out his hand to a leper and says I'm willing and then the paralytic and Jairus and Legion and the woman with the, we could go on and on and that's the Jesus who's preparing heaven for you Now, it is here that I should say that heaven is only for those who are born again. Heaven's not your default destination. 
The scripture actually says hell is unless you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is for those who are born again. So, so that should temper our lives here on earth from getting too discouraged. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, in the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we can take solace whenever it does not. In other words, when you have joy here on earth, it's just a glimpse of what's to come. And when your life is full of circumstances that aren't what you might call heavenly, you can take solace in knowing it's just for a little while. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. And heaven next is a place of holiness. Now, I'd like to point out that holiness is not boring. For whatever reason, and I think it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, holiness gets a bad rap. We, we think to live a holy life would be to live a boring life, but that's not so. As, as you see in the world around you, God is creative. He's not dull. Think about the creativity of God. All that you have seen of his creativity in this fallen world pales in comparison to what is to come. And I'm so, so, so thankful to be assured that heaven is a place of unity. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. God has united all things together in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things together in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we live in a sinful, fallen world, and where sin persists, division is present. Sin leads us to be self-centered. Sin leads us to be, have animosity for others. And especially, it seems, animosity for others who don't look like us or talk like us. A multitude of ethnicities will be in heaven. Hallelujah. But no animosity between them. Now, this is Martin Luther King weekend. Martin Luther King Day is tomorrow. And my favorite quote of his is, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And when the light of the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom in full, there will be unity. Now, perfect unity is to come. I do believe you ought to leverage your life here on earth for a picture of it now. And we're also told heaven is joyful. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the psalmist, interestingly, doesn't say, you made known to me the path of life. He says, you make. It's present. It's ongoing. Your joy should be increasing as you're maturing in in Christ. I love what Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven. Of heaven, he says, no death, no suffering, no funeral homes, psychiatric wards, no rape, no missing children, No drug rehabilitation centers, no bigotry, no muggings or killings, no worry or depression or economic downturns, no wars, no unemployment, no anguish over failure or miscommunication, no con men, no locks, no death, no mourning, no pain, no boredom, no, no, no arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer, no taxes, no bills, no computer crashes, no weeds, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams or accidents, no septic tank backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails, close friendships but no clicks, laughter but no put-downs, intimacy but no temptation to immorality, no hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals. Imagine mealtimes full of 
full of stories, laughter, and joy without fear of insensitivity, inappropriate behavior, anger, gossip, lust, jealousy, hurt feelings, or anything that eclipses joy. That will be heaven. Scripture also says of heaven there will be no night. And night will be no more. Revelation 22.5 They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Last observation about heaven is that it has the throne of God at the center. Revelation again 22 verses 1 and 2 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, just for a moment as we head to the conclusion, that's the glory of heaven. And can you imagine being in such a state in your heart that you walk up to Jesus and all you have to ask him is some absurd, sarcastic, taking God's word and sort of throwing it in the dirt scenario. And all you really want is to be able to stand there and look at the Pharisees and say, hey, we got him and you couldn't. That all of life has just become a silly game. That can happen easily, friends. One of the ways that you can protect yourself from living sort of an aimless life is to keep setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, there you will appear with him in glory. But what I want to conclude with is this glorious notion that we just talked about heaven, we just talked about the resurrection, and I want to come back to Mark chapter 12, And for you simply to see something that I find actually pretty stunning. I'll just use verses 18 and 24 to make the point. The Sadducees came to him. And then it says, verse 24, Jesus said to them. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus was there. He was in heaven. He was where things are glorious. Perfect. But the nature of God is that He desires to give mercy. And here's the extent of that desire that the Son of God would leave heaven, become incarnated with flesh, and dwell among us. I mean, Jesus says, as He heads to the cross, I call a gazillion angels right now and wipe all of y'all out. That's what I could do. But it's not just that he comes to earth and dwells among us for 30 years. It's as we're reading Mark 12, he knows where he's going. He's going to the cross. He's opening the way for us who are here to get there where he's come from. Jesus comes from heaven to earth to live the life you and I cannot live and then die the death we deserve to allow entry into the very place he's come from that we could never deserve and earn on our own. Everything that will not be in heaven was placed on Jesus at the cross. Darkness, guilt, 
sin, shame, backroom deals, and we could go on and on. We will be in heaven without any burdens because all the burdens that are justly ours, Jesus willingly took at Calvary. And when the Sadducees come up to him, all they bring is a mockery of a question. That's what makes it so sad. I was going to say you see, but that's not a time for it to... And Jesus, in contrast to their arrogance, has come with such humility. And he tells them twice, you are wrong. His response, he says it at the beginning, and then he says at the very end, you are quite wrong. And I simply want to ask you this morning is, do you believe in saying that, that he was right? So three quick concluding applications. First of all, just think more about heaven. Just think more about heaven. Not in a head stuck in the sand kind of way, but when life isn't what you think it should be, when, when circumstances aren't what you hope that they would have, what they would be, think more about heaven. It will make you a more effective ambassador of Jesus here on earth, not a, a lesser ambassador of Jesus. And then let your best moments in life point you to heaven as well as your worst. Those moments that you, do, you get glimpses. And God's so good and he's so merciful that you'll have great joys in heaven. Uh, I'm sorry, joys in earth that are glimpses of heaven. Recognize them. Appreciate them. Be thankful for them. But then your worst moments, the hard days, the discouraging days, the dark days. I'm trying to learn in my life when all is dark, I can at least say, well, God, thank you that it won't always be this way. Because you've promised to make all things better. And if it's not good yet, God, what I'm believing is that means you're not done yet. And I'm going to cling to where you did say something's finished. And that's the cross. It is finished. Death is a separation. When you die physically, your soul is separated from your body. Spiritual death is when your soul is separated from God. And the irony is that's how you were born. That's why you must be born again. And I want to tell you with full confidence, that's why Jesus is here. That's what the gospel of Mark is about. I've come to seek and save the lost. I've not come to be served. I've come to serve and give my life a ransom so that you can be restored. And your eternity is not an eternity of separation. It is an eternity of worship unto the Lamb. We'll stand together and we'll pray together and we'll worship the Lord together.
Father, I praise you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are the God who has sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that I could not live. On my best day, I could not live faithfully unto you. But not only did he live the life I couldn't live, the Lord Jesus went to the Calvary and died the death that I deserve. And every cause of darkness, suffering, pain, self-centeredness, sin, he, in my life, he took upon himself. And I do not deserve it. But I do believe it. And I'm thankful that in everything that Jesus says and does, in his earthly ministry and what you have promised in the life that is to come, we are grateful to stand on the promise that we love a God who desires mercy and has called the sinners to himself. In Jesus' name, amen.